0: Welcome everybody. This is the very first Documental video. Um, and this is because we're moving from mapping the American states of mind to healing them. Because as I said last week, or in the the uh, most recent edition of Documental, there is just no point in mapping anything if it's sick. So let's heal. So we're gonna kick this off with my guest, Dr. Gwendolyn Reese. Now. She's a high priestess in in a Hellenistic Wiccan tradition. I'm going to let her explain that because I I don't want to get it wrong. But she's also uh, an academic. She is an associate librarian librarian at American University here in Washington, D.C. Her background is in education and information sciences, obviously, but but really what she's most versed in is religion and, and the classics. The reason I wanted to bring... Dr. Reese onto the show is because she's, she's released a video about um, how Greek tragedy, and in particular, the Aristia by Aeschylus, um, offers some, some clues to how, in America, we might get past this moment and not waste it, this moment being one of soul reckoning. Facing the things that we still haven't faced in the last 200 plus years of our nation, and um, so I'm, I, you know, I'll just leave it at that. So, welcome, Dr. Reese. I'm so excited that you're here. Could you explain to my audience, which ranges from policymakers to journalists to my mother to astrologers to? Um, Oh, golly, I mean, I, I, have, an, I have a lot of, um, I have Christian nationalists. I have a really crazy collection of people who, who tune into Documental, so there's kind of the lay of the land, but I would say what we all have in common is this idea that it is possible to use policy to affect personal changes and that they're bi-directional. And I initially started this and, and a lot of people came to the show because I was interested in revolutionizing how we define and treat mental health but then I came to realize that we needed to treat the mind and the soul before we got around to that so those, those are the people you're talking to <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so very, very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So I guess one of the first things is just to explain a little bit about, you had mentioned that I am a pagan priestess. I've been a practicing pagan for decades, and I've been a priestess for also the last couple of decades. So paganism is a new religious movement that has roots. It has inspirational roots in the pre-Christian traditions. And so for myself, because part of this is that we believe that the old gods continue to exist as real beings, in which we are in relationship with them, so I was called to be a priestess of Athena, the goddess of democracy and wisdom, and Apollo, the lord of light. And then I am a part of the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel, and that is an eclectic Wiccan tradition that has its headquarters in Delaware, but I run a coven here in the District of Columbia, Theophania, And I also organize, I'm the president of the Sacred Space Foundation, which organizes one of the major conferences for various forms of mystic practitioners that happens each year on this coast.
0: So what do you do as a group then? Is it, um, so it's an organized, is it, it's, would you consider it an organized religion? So it is a religion. It's kind of interesting because I
1: also have a sociology of religion hat, at which point it is not really an institutionalized religion at this point. It is in the early stages of routinization is what we would say from a sociological perspective. But we do have, I mean, we are a religion. We do have organizations. So like I said, the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel is a group. uh, It's a tradition, a Wiccan tradition that has numerous covens in mostly the, uh, the eastern part of the United States. And so the covens are small. We tend to operate in kind of a house church model. We're small ritual groups that come together to, um, worship, celebrate, and do religious work and, and sustain each other. It's also an initiatory practice, which means that there is embedded within Wicca the pathways that are about continuous individual spiritual evolution as well as collective spiritual evolution. Hmm.
0: Okay, so spiritual evolution. Let's let's go through that filter to talk about um, the power of the Greek tragedies and the lessons that they have for us. Is it possible that it, at this moment in American history, which is turbulent, and I don't need to define it, I think all of us could come at that turbulence with a definition of our own experience of it, but we would all agree right now is a turbulent time. So, mm-hmm. Is that a moment fraught with the potential for spiritual evolution in a nation?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you can tell that looking at things that are historical as well. I mean, you know, when we think about, and I am personally very attached because it comes through me and my contacts and everything um, with the ancient Greek, which, you know, that's, that's my particular context and framework for uh, reckoning with the holy, is that, you know, when we think about the glory of ancient Athens almost all of that was happening directly after Athens was completely destroyed by the Persians and had the opportunity to rebuild fundamentally from scratch. I mean that is where you begin to see you know most of the, uh, the things that are in the democracy, the theater, the rise of philosophy, the rise of the arts that are so important to us and I do think it's not accidental that you can have this kind of dramatic rebirth in different ways when you break down the structures that are there. I mean, you know, hopefully we can do that without that level of destruction. But no, I do think times of rupture, they create opportunities for new forms to grow. So, and I, I think the other thing, though, the, to remember with anything that actually has to do with this type of work, one of the things that I received as inspiration from Apollo, Apollon, is you know there is there is no such thing as a great leap without the danger of a great fall. That mm. it is always that way. And so we have opportunities in these moments in which you know, as as pagans and as witches and boundary walkers and all that kind of stuff, we look for those liminal moments those moments where you're neither betwixt nor between, because that is where you have outsized power to make transformative change. So I do believe that there is possibility inherent in this moment. This virus has shown us very clearly the broken places in our society Mm. that we need to fix and heal. It has shown us that our economy was not strong. It was weak. Mm. A strong economy never would have collapsed that quickly. Mm. It shows us all of these different things, the, the rise of, you know, the, um, the reckoning with our white supremacy that is in the foundation. It gives us, it's made it very visible and, I welcome that visibility because it gives us the opportunity to change and shape and grow collectively, but also individually. Just like you know, when you are in an individual growth cycle, those times in which your life and its current structures are fragmented and broken apart give you opportunities to really refashion and shape yourself in different ways if you can manage to do that. Now, that's not saying that anyone who doesn't, it's not necessarily a failure there. I don't believe in this idea of like, you know, um, some kind of uh, what we call spiritual bypassing ways would be saying like, well, you're never given a load too heavy to carry. And that's clearly not true. That's just a form of victim blaming. So I don't mean it in that way, but I do mean there are opportunities in these moments.
0: Okay, so good. So then let's find out how we could take practical steps to get there. Um, What I would like to do, I I, I do actually have some goals with this conversation that people could walk away and say, okay, that was not something I normally would have thought of maybe, or that's what I was looking for, either way. I would like people to walk away from this conversation with an idea of practical things and practical um, questions that they can do and ask so that they start to align themselves with that momentum of change for good, not collapse. Okay. Um, so let's begin with the role. Okay. So you said you are. Um, you said your contacts. So I guess you're. You're when you. You you are. Um, Not an acolyte, I don't know, but you you work with Athena and and Apollo. How does this work? Let's start with where you're coming from, and then let's get to the role of that in tragedy, democracy, and theater. Okay,
1: so I think actually it would help if I went into some more of the philosophical first. That might actually help a bit. So I will just say that, you know, in most pagan traditions, it's not just that you pray, you also listen, and they answer back. So oh, I okay, okay. <laughs> it is a communicative thing. And of course, there's lots of different ways that that can happen. But um, so specifically what I think would be useful for people to understand. And, you know, usually I'm talking to other pagans is the idea of miasma. So miasma is spiritual pollution. And it is my belief that what spiritual pollution really is, is when we are out of right relationship. And that can be out of right relationship with nature, with the gods, with ourselves, like there are full natures with each other. And so when you're out of right relationship, that creates a kind of, it's almost like a smog that keeps you from being able to have your spirit fully shining through. And so that can be individual, it can be collective so i believe that miasma is the root of a huge number of our challenges and then the question then is how do you purify and heal miasma so part of what i have been saying in the video that you referenced earlier is that it is my belief that the fundamental root source of miasma in this country that has been there since the very beginning is the miasma that the spiritual pollution that comes from the genocide of First Nations people and the enslavement of black people, that that really is kind of the root foundational miasma that we have to address and heal in this country. There are other things that are in every country. And I would say a lot of our problems, the miasma between us and the natural world, that is not just this country, although we have it, that is all of humanity has this problem Mm -hmm. at this Mm -hmm. point. But so this idea that there is something that is, it's basically a type of pollution that needs to be purified and cleaned. So this was something that was understood within uh, the ancient Greek tradition. They might have framed it a little bit differently than I am framing it now into English, but I think that that's pretty accurate. And so what I was saying about tragedy is that Athens was the first democracy Prior to that, you tended to have various forms of government, the most common being a king. When you have a king who is in charge of the body politic and you have miasma, then you do rituals to purify the king and therefore purify the body politic. That does not work in a democracy. There is no king, and if we are all sharing power, then this is something that is distributed. So historically, theater and tragedy rise As a result of this need to create a ritual and theater, originally theater is a ritual that allows you to cleanse the body politic in a democracy. And so what you would have then is this idea that you would call up in tragedy the source the root of miasma, represent it, have the people, like all of the audiences also participating in this, identifying and pulling up all of these kinds of um, emotions and all of these sorts of, kind of the, the problematic aspects inside, externalizing them through catharsis, and catharsis literally means cleansing them. But part of that is that those things that are part of the human condition that tend to lead us into danger and trouble, you put them out there and you don't ever lose sight of them. So you represent them and you go through this in a ritual way, and that's originally what theater was. I had mentioned in there that, um, you know, I was specifically talking about some analysis of the Oresteia. And the Oresteia, what it's doing is um, it is ritually showing the creation of democracy as a new world order. But I was also saying, Mm. oh, I want Lin-Manuel Miranda to do this because the one thing I have seen that has really functioned that way is Hamilton. And I mean, I do think if you think about what Hamilton does, it is doing something on this deeper level. And I think that part of it for me is it's not that ritual is ever sufficient. to change things but I think that if we were really to understand some of this power in the arts that there is something there and that we need to find ways to to bring up and hold in front of us and cleanse and purge and really address some of these root issues it it is insufficient to do that alone Um, it has to also be done by real changes in the culture real changes in policy but I think that there is something very important that
0: is there also that I was trying to call some attention to. Well, so first of all, let's then just kind of um, discuss why the Aristia in particular, was that the fir- that was the first set of tragedies that was um, intended that were intended to help cleanse the land for a new democracy?
1: No, it's not the first. I mean, you know, honestly, it was the one I was reading and I keep get, getting called back to when I started having these kinds of insights. So I was mm-hmm. using it as a jumping off place. The think- play by Aeschylus isn't, it is a, one of the earliest that we have. Um, but it, what it is doing is in that particular play, it is the about the creation of democracy as a new world order. And that part of what is going on in that play that is part of the kind of inspiration that I was receiving also has to do with the nature of the Arenis, which are the furies. Yeah. And so in ancient Greece you know the, the furies are not goddesses per se what they are is the distillation of the anger of the wrongfully dead the corrupt sacrifice and that part of the new world order that was created and mythically displayed in the orestia is the creation of democracy the institution of isonomia which is equality of all before the law and the kind of negotiation that was conducted by Athena with the support of Apollo, Apollon, in terms of having the arenis, the spirits of the wrongfully dead, turned into heroes who were the ones who link the, um, the legal system to the idea of justice. And this idea that you have to reckon with those ancestors that have been wrongfully um, sacrificed is something that was very important and to me as a pagan i I do strongly believe in the reality of the ancestors and that that is part of this that we have to reckon with the spirits of those that have been killed through wrongful sacrifice which i would say genocide slavery and then police violence all of this that's part of the part of the system
0: one thing that you said in the video um which i'm going to include the link so that um the audience can go and see it it's not very long and it's extremely um concise it's only about 15 minutes It's good i, I hope that uh, the audience takes some minutes to go and, and um spend some time with it but you talk about rather than the um these heroes that you're speaking about they don't start off as heroes they start off as the as the fury the collective fury, the, uh, the anger and the, the vendetta that they're searching for because yeah. of having been wrongfully sacrificed. And it's Athena, who's the bringer of democracy, who says, okay, we're gonna make good on this. Your sacrifice, I mean, this is my interpretation. Your sacrifice will not have been in vain. You will be turned into heroes and we will in your name perpetuate justice. Do I understand that correctly?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, what it's doing is it's kind of giving them this other job and also keeping in front and making commitments um, that, which the Athenians kept, which is that they were constantly honoring the, um, those who had been, the the the, that they then became the Eumenides, the spirits of those who had been wrongfully killed. And to me, what that means is something like, you know, for us to keep constantly in mind the fact that there are and were people of color, especially black and indigenous people who have been killed and that that is at the root of killed and exploited. That's at the root of so much of what we have and not allowing ourselves to look away from that Mm -hmm. and keeping that like going. So I find it very interesting. For example, you see, this is very common in Australia where they do, um, the honoring of the people of place, wherever they do, they start every meeting with talking about the Aboriginal group that is from where they are standing right then. And every,
0: like like a board meeting or every, what do you mean every meeting? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they honor like, you know, the group that was there, they call attention to it and, you know, they honor the ancestors of the place and that does something. I mean, you know, I was very impressed when I was there by that. Now, I mean, you know, I think that is something that we could potentially do here. There's a lot of things that we could do, and none of that is sufficient. But right. I think that it keeps it like it keeps it from receding into the background when there's so many things that are kind of uh, distracting. And I think that's important.
0: Right. Let's get into that too. Talking about how there's the spiritual awareness, but then there also has to be the practical, and neither is more. They're they're both equal in, in their necessity, neither is in the Ascendant. Maybe at, at some point, one is in the Ascendant, but they have to be together. You have to have practical steps. There, therefore, you'd have to have some policies, and then you also have to have the commitment spiritually and the willingness to understand and to recognize that you're headed for a, a, an evolution of sorts. Do, do I understand this correctly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say which one is more important because I think it's difficult to say that, you know, like doing uh, ancestor honoring is more important if you have people who are getting shot. But I will say I don't think either of them are sufficient. So I think both are necessary and both are insufficient. So, you know, whichever proportion, I think that that probably varies according to context.
0: Okay, so where we stand with this then is... What we have so far is we have this idea that our nation currently is covered in miasma, a kind of a fog of stink, of uh, that was brought about by wrongful sacrifice, um, and and corruption, and and what maybe a lack of heroes or a lack of uh, justice, and the justice is is always held in place by remembering the heroes? How does justice actually get brought and sustained?
1: So, I mean, part of this is, um, and what is clear in the Oristia, part of the reason why I found this so important is the doctrine of isonomia, which is equality of all before the law, is something that is there in ancient Greece. It is there in the earliest democracy, and it is there as a spiritual command by, I mean, historically, by Apollo through his Oracle at Delphi that was, you know, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the foundations of the first democracy were actually commanded or given um, oracular kinds of power by Apollo. Um, you know, the construction, of the, demo- uh, the construction of the constitution of Athens, the reforms of Clisthenes, all of these things, they had divine oversight in that way. So, um, you know, but the idea of isonomia, that that is not just about a legal system, that that is a divine principle, the equality of all before the law. So part of that is ensuring practically that that exists Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that that is absolutely necessary. And. Like I said, I mean, I am a pagan, so I would be calling on the spirits of the humanities and honoring the ancestors to help ensure and enforce on a spiritual level that that is happening. But that has to be done through honoring them.
0: So what we want to get to here then is what kinds of rituals do we have that we could maybe um, reinvigorate? Or what kinds of rituals could we create? But you just made me think of something. You know, if it seems like Apollo, according to what you're saying, Apollo and Athena are the bringers of democracy, is that? Originally, yeah, they were very, very foundational in that, yeah. And if you go to our Supreme Court building down the road here, and, you know, many, many court buildings that are built in the classic style, there is reference to a whole panoply of Greek influences, whether it's the Greek gods or, you know, Greek inscriptions or whatever. So... Who's actually the spiritual keeper of justice in America. Would you say, is it the Christian God is it Athena and Apollo because our buildings do reference Greece and I'm not, you know, I've seen the Dan Brown things and then you know I've I've actually visited the Masonic temple. I have kind of some anecdotal understanding of things. I'm not a scholar in it, though. Um, So maybe you could enlighten us.
1: Well, I mean, I think that these are always really challenging questions in that, you know, what is clear is historically you had um, a group of people in the Enlightenment, they are rebelling in a lot of ways against the establishment of the church that they felt was, you know, confining them, and that during that time they began to rediscover a lot of the pre-Christian uh, wisdom that we get to thank the Muslims for saving in a lot of ways, hmm. because that's actually part of the history too. Like we wouldn't have Aristotle if it weren't for the um, the Muslim scholars, and so they are rediscovering um, the history in Rome and in Greece at that point in time, bringing it forward and using that as a lot of kind of uh, inspiration. So whether or not you believe, and I, I it is not my job. The other thing is pagans are not, um, we're not about like conversion pressure, like at mm-hmm. all. So, you know, it is my belief that there are spiritual beings who I know and I interact with in certain ways and they probably wear other faces in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, that okay. is, that is an ancient Greek concept as well. You know, that's like this idea that they would be traveling around, which drives historians crazy because you would have these, you know, these sites where they'd be like, and this is where Alexander the Great sacrificed to uh, Hercules, Anticles. And it's like, well, he's in Tyre. So whoever that was, the locals weren't calling him (laughs) Hercules, you know, so that kind of thing. But so, you know, I do think that there is some inspiration that was flowing from behind there. But I mean, you know, it is my belief that there was inspiration from the Great Ones of old. That's my personal belief that doesn't necessarily mean that there is not also inspiration coming from other sources. I would assume that there is and i you know and I would also say there's people from all sorts of different cultures that have come here and brought their own, their own well family. that
0: does that does make it an interesting way of thinking about um well e pluribus unum, but also um, you know many faces, one God. Lots of things that start to come into play about um, Just what is the role not of the difference between church and state but spirit in In Something alive and this nation is alive and I guess where I'm going with this is I'm thinking, okay, well, if you have a nation that is so disparate in so many ways and traditionally, anyway, has um, wanted very much to keep church and state separate. Yeah. How do you create rituals that are meaningful and 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 observed and important to people who either fundamentally believe a God is this one thing mm-hmm. or who are ecumenical and relaxed about it, just um, aware that there's a power and it's necessary and you know don't forget this is a very reductionist time and so we have a lot of science you know where that where this whole conversation you and i are having and, and i'm actually a science writer and i've covered medicine for, is cuckoo so how do we navigate that kind of assuming okay that, that also assumes that what we're talking about is useful and practical and does work, but how do we navigate making something like that acceptable?
1: in my opinion, there's several different things I can say. First of all, I absolutely believe in separation of church and state. I think it's incredibly dangerous, and that we've seen that erode in many ways over time, and that I think is very concerning and difficult. So, um, I think that you know, so part of the situation that we have. Um, Pagans in this way are very much like, I'm going to say, uh, similar to Hindus in this way, in that you can have people who believe a whole lot of different metaphysical positions coming together to do work and worship mm-hmm. together because it's mm-hmm. really focused on practice. And so in that way, it's a little bit different. Like, I don't care what somebody else believes. We can be in the same circle as long as we are both working for the same ends and you know and I happen to be a pretty I'm I'm a polytheist I believe that there are multiple beings I also believe in panentheism that like the divine is in all things so you know there's there's a number of different positions but if I've got somebody who believes that you know all the gods are really one god well you know that's fine as long as we're able to still come together and work I don't care um so you know there's a little bit of a difference there but the other thing is like I don't see any of this as necessarily in conflict with science either there are some scientists who might but I don't see any of this as conflict in science Um, you know I also am a big believer in science I'm a big believer in you know a lot of different things i just think that the the issue with science is that it only observes the physical reality and the only forms of knowledge that it accepts as leading to veridical knowledge are rooted in the physical and so you know i don't believe that those are the only ways of knowing and i don't believe that all the causes are necessarily physical but I do think that therefore for those things in which science is very good at it, then that's, that's great. But I don't see this as necessarily being in conflict. And I guess, you know, part of the deal of having come out of the broom closet when I was 17 is that I just <laughs> don't care if people think I'm credible. I, you know, it's just whatever. It's um, you know, I, I have the life that I am living and building in paganism is a large part about building alternative culture. And I am more interested in trying to envision a different reality and building more on the kind of social and artistic structures and trying to envision what would a just society look Mm -hmm. like? What is a justice society? And there's really good work out there. I mean, why aren't we talking more about things like restorative justice? There's other models, but a large Mm -hmm. part of typically have in this country, I think, is uh, we fall down on the lack of imagination. Oh my gosh, I completely agree with that.
0: And I think that that's actually possibly, now let's get into what a sacrifice is, because we're gonna have to discuss what sacrifice means, we're gonna talk about ritual, because right, ritual is about maybe giving something up, killing something. Well, okay, what kinds of rituals could we choose from or or what kinds of rituals um, are effective? And one that comes to mind is is a ritual sacrifice. And since it's the corrupt sacrifice you mentioned, I'm thinking, all right, well, how about a just sacrifice? This is a little metaphorical, but it's appropriate. I think we've sacrificed our minds. We've sacrificed our imagination to the idea that we will be taken care of. And, And I've gotten in the last... Few months of writing documental I've gotten into what happened to the American dream mm-hmm. I think we sacrificed it we gave it up we let it be stolen from us uh, because it does it's not true we cannot do the things that the American dream has promised to us um, mm-hmm. we can't do it it's not possible because the resources to make it possible are not in our control anymore mm-hmm. and what I think should have been the actual American dream, because I do believe America is special because of the bounty of this nation and this and this continent and the resources and the, the guiding documents ethos, although it is imperfect. The ethos being if you know what makes you happy, you can achieve it. And that if you know what makes you happy, that's because you're engaged with your mind and your imagination. You imagine it yeah. would make you happy. That is. But that's been stolen from us. And so I look at it as the real American dream is this idea that you can envision something and have access to the resources to help you create that vision. And then you work your butt off. And you keep working your butt off using everything in a collaborative process, not a dominating one. And somewhere along the line, it became domination over instead of dominion with. All of the resources I don't really know what where it went crazy and where it went wrong I don't and I'm not looking to blame I just want it to be different and I want to participate in that so if I were to create a momentum for for change and I'd say all right look ritual has to be a part of it why don't we sacrifice this dead hollow dusty carcass of the dream idea And would that be enough? Can we sacrifice something that may not actually be tangible but is real and get rid of it?
1: I think the the main thing is the true sacrifice is when you are giving up something and you are giving it to you're giving it for a bigger purpose i mean you know whatever that is so like you know in the in the ancient greeks it was an awful lot of like you would do animal sacrifice that is also about the only time they would eat meat and they would turn it into a communal meal so it's just like a really different situation but to me it's like the all the ultimate and valued resource for mortal beings is time and so figuring out, but being intentional about giving your time to something that is outside you and is bigger than you Mm. giving. Um, the other thing is like, frankly, I think that if we're going to really redress the miasma, I think reparations are probably something we're going to have to do at some point. I think that that would be an appropriate thing if we did it in an appropriate spirit of sacrifice. Um, I think a lot of the arts when you go out and you're giving of yourself in performance and it's, you know, there's lots and lots of different forms of sacrifice, but it needs to be something that you are giving of yourself, of your deep self that you value in service of something that is greater than you and that has generative purpose. So, you know, to me, it's like a large part of this is really trying to figure out kind of like what, what is the, what is the parameters around society that we want to build? I mean, to me, Like I look at it and I'm like, I think that we could create a society in which the goal was the pursuit of ariti and ariti is the idea of um, it's translated it's from greek and it's translated as both virtue and as excellence but it means virtue like the way an herbalist means virtue it's like the living purified essence of a living being Mm. so like what does that mean we could build our society where our main goal was how do we maximize for everyone the ability to pursue the ariti, their their excellence. And I mean, if you took that as your real goal and you said, that's our goal that we're going to, then how would you structure society to have that happen? And, you know, that, that kind of like big picture thinking and imagination, I think that that's the first part. Like, what is it that we really want to do? Do we want to accumulate more stuff? I mean, you got to have a certain amount of stuff, but to me, it's like, you know, the part that we often do is we accumulate a lot of stuff and we don't leave ourselves any time or vital energy or any of the supports to pursue what it really means to be human
0: i would agree with you and i have talked about that but i'm not quite sure i know how to turn the tide against that i do think that that's tied in with this idea that we've we've outsourced our minds and our imagination we let others fill our heads with what stories we should be paying attention to and then that focuses our attention on what tools we should be using and what goals we should have and how you know I, I guess what I want to do is clear that all away. Tabula rasa, start new. How do you do that? Is that crazy? Is that impossible? Is that impractical? because I really don't want to do this as an exercise in silliness. I, I am interested in creating a series of videos and tools for people to reimagine America, to reimagine being practical and successful and peaceful and fulfilled and kind, I don't think that these are dumb things and silly things. These are, this is what we were meant to do.
1: I just yeah, don't know yeah. how to do it. Well, and I mean, I think part of that is like, so part of it is figuring out where to start. Um, and that I think is a bit, cause we're talking about something really big. And I think the first thing is like, for me, and this partially has to do with my mind, I have to get like a really big picture. And like I said, I, I have a big picture of what it is that I would like to build towards. Um, that may not be a completely shared picture, but I, I have a pretty big picture um, that would be very, okay. Very well, but
0: how do we, how do we go about doing that then? So isn't, isn't that the code of many colors kind of an idea? You have a picture and I have a picture and you know, hardcore fundamentalist Christians have a picture and somebody has got to lose or do they, how do we make this all possible without, I mean, it's very paradoxical. How do we step through this?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of that is, you know, stepping through and working in your own community. A large part of what I'm trying to do is work in our community in my community. It's, um, but, you know, I mean, so then I think there are pieces, like, I don't think we're going to be able to do this right off, by the way. I think that that's, that's not likely. I do also think, though, that we have these moments um, that, you know, we can be working on changing. And if I had all the answers, and if I had the resources, I would already be doing it. But um, I do think, you know, if you look at, like, where are the, where are the intersections between those three circles? There's a gaping maw of need. There's, like, your particular passion and interest and what you're good at. And then there's your situation situational power. Like where do you actually have situational power and where can you take advantage of those moments? But I mean, I can tell you, for instance, one of the big ones that I know we're going to have to deal with. So it's a good place to start is our food supply. I -hmm. mean, we Mm -hmm. have a completely unsustainable food supply, but we also have a bunch Mm -hmm. of incentive structures that are Mm -hmm. set up To continue an unsustainable situation. And one of the things that we are going to be in big, big, big trouble, and I get this in a bunch of different ways if we don't address it, is how to get local good food that is close to us. So there's all sorts of things that, you know, we could be doing and starting like at that moment, that's a fundamental human need. I would also say water. I mean, taking a look at our water situation
0: and Why haven't we done that? Why? I mean, and I agree with you. And and those seem like everybody, no matter where you're coming from, you can agree on that. Um, So why haven't we done that? What has been the corruption in our minds and systems? And and could we use a ritual to apply that and apply it to those two problems?
1: so yes whether or not a ritual i mean you know i think this is one of the things where rituals i i believe in magic i am i believe all of that i also think you know rituals are usually for the people who are willing to go do them as where they have the main power but part of it is just you know trying to wake people up to the idea that they need to be thinking way more locally we are super focused on the national everything and most of these things Mm -hmm. they got to be dealt with at like the city and county level and so how is it that you do that and that is part of where like i said my when i chose to be a librarian it was like all right the inability of people to understand information and to figure out what they need and how to parse it and how to assess it is a fundamental breakdown in our society i'm putting my energy there um you know in training people how to be information literate so like figuring out, and part of that is I'm always focused on like the local piece there. So that, that's part of it. I mean, all of these things are really big ideas and you would need to unpack them and think through in a, in a big way. But there's, there's examples out there and there's places that you can support, um, you know, and those are, those are just a couple of the big ones. There, you know, another one that we have a moment for is we could be completely rethinking how it is that we work? And I'm really hoping that that is something that we re-envision. Most of us are working either remotely or we have people who are having to go in into potentially dangerous conditions as essential workers. but you know we ought to be taking a look at like how it is that we work and how we could change the structures. That would have really big impacts in a lot of ways.
0: Okay, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that um, the practical is connected to the spiritual. From your perspective. I mean, this is one reason why I was excited to have you in particular on here. I mean, I I have a million policy people that I could bring on. Sure. To talk to. But this is different. And and my goal is to give people insight into our problems that they're not going to be exposed to. In the New York Times, in the Washington Post. Even though I hope that they are reading the excellent reporting that's going on there. I want to bring people just something they haven't thought of before and and I'm captured by this idea that ritual might have an impact and Mm -hmm. that it was important enough to the very first democracy Athens that Mm -hmm. it was codified so what and I'm not diminishing what you just described because and and we can circle back to that because I think one of the reasons why we don't focus locally is because we've had the, you know watch the birdie and then it's been stolen from us again we're all focused on America this and small government and you know, no government at all and, and you know, the power of the government is too big and the whole Reaganomics stuff, which really has just done nothing except socialized corporatism. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a whole other discussion. That's how come a lot of our local power has been taken away from us is because under all of that guise of gov- government's too big, we've been monopolized. Do we have any rituals right now in this country Do we have any actual rituals we could point to? Is the 4th of July a ritual? So
1: the 4th of July at this point, it has some ritual aspects, but I would say no. One of our big breakdowns is that we do not have effective civic rituals. I don't think that we do. Um, Did we ever? And if we did, what happened? I don't know if we ever did. We have not in my lifetime. So, and that does partially come to, there's a few different things. So Uh, The version of Protestantism that has been the dominant ascendant version of Christianity in this country does not typically do rituals well. Um, So that's part of it. There's also that division of uh, church and state has frequently meant that we don't consider rituals. And so there are any number of rituals that we could be developing that I think would be very helpful. But I also don't think that in this society we have done a good job ever with those so there are um i mean there's just so many different types that you could potentially do i will say that part of it the things that i think function the best usually have to do with the arts Mm. and um that's like i said theater has its original its original purpose was ritual And I do think sometimes when you encounter something and I'd mentioned Hamilton, it did function that way. And I think it does function that way. Um, But I also think that there is a challenge in that as well in that typically what we have now is that we don't have people who are participating in art as much as just consuming art Mm. and this Mm -hmm. was always like a big thing where you know like in the in the tragedies you would go in you would have this group tragedy but the people who would be in the chorus would be the um people who were like the younger coming up into their citizenship that would be part of kind of their initiatory structure is to go through and play the roles of all of the different people that are represented on the stage in athens so, I mean, you know, there were other pieces that were there that we don't have here.
0: Actually, they do do that. If, if you, have you ever been to the Masonic Temple here in D.C.? Uh, over on so 16th?
1: I have been. I haven't been to, I have been to it. I
0: have not been in it. If, um, um, and, and anybody in the audience who, who's in D.C., you know, it's open to the public. Yeah. And you can tour it, and then you can go down to the library, and you can talk to the librarian. It's fascinating because one of the things that is – that, that the, the Masonic temples have put most of their money into is exactly what you're describing. And I didn't know that until I took a tour. They have very elaborate theater, very elaborate sets, very elaborate costumes, and they would act out all of these different civic themes. I don't yeah. know if they still do. I guess they still do. But um, but it was it's interesting that the, the Masons are considered that secret kind of force behind the founding of this country. So there was... In our, in our gestation and then our, in our birth, this idea. So the scenes are there of what you're talking about where the arts are actually a communicative way to the soul and spirit. Well, and in fact, you know, in Masonic rituals. So I guess this is what I'm saying. It's like there, there,
1: there are pieces, there are pieces in masonry, there are pieces in a bunch of different places, but there are not places that we do this as an entire society. Because also in the Masonic rituals, um, you know, it has to do with spiritual evolution. That is part of what is absolutely there. And, you know, that is there in all the pagan rituals. It is there in a number of different religious rituals, but we haven't really done it typically in a, in a civic way, except that, as you pointed out, in the history, there is a history of uh, many of the, the leaders being Masonic members. I don't know how current that is now. I think that most organizations, they began to see their membership drop Mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, which is also where a bunch of the old esoteric traditions also had a lot of members, and then they had fewer and fewer members. And now we don't have many members in many of these things. But, you know, like I said, there is um, so there's definitely ritual that can be done um, and I do think, to me, the biggest part is more taking a big picture look at what is it that we are attempting to do on a spiritual level and having that philosophy kind of be a guiding principle. And I think that's a large part of what was there in, in masonry that
0: helped inform some of the founding. So where does that conversation begin? Okay, so now I'm going switch, to switch here. Yeah. You... You are the one in charge of this conversation. You want to. You want to tell us your vision of what could and should happen for us to make what you're talking about to ground it and to start growing it. What What is. What are the steps that have to have? Who starts to talk about it? Where does it get talked about? What is. You know. Give me a kind of a blueprint.
1: So. I mean, I think, like I said, beginning to have within various groups, the bigger discussions in, like whatever your local community is, however that is defined in mine, it's probably going to be within the people that are in the pagan community for us to begin to have these big, big picture conversations about what is the kind of society that we wish to build what are the kinds of relationships that we wish to build and how do we sacralize those? How do we think through the trajectory of a human life in order to have it be something that is given sacred meaning? How is it that we do this in a society in which we are trying to bring many different people that are of various kinds of backgrounds together? How is it that we live in sacred relationship with in our workplace, the people that we work with, just all of these different things. But I actually think that that's the part that we need to be doing. And just having those conversations is important. So, I mean, none of this is easy. Absolutely none of this is remotely easy. It's not easy on the visioning work. It's certainly not easy on figuring out how to transform this into community pieces. But I think that that's kind of where you have to start. And for me, I take into and carry with me the idea of spiritual evolution. I take with me the idea that everything in the world is alive and has its own form of consciousness and that I am in relationship with all of this all the time. So I take with me an idea of like, how can I figure out how to be in healthy relationship? How can I work with, and I, I also belong to the Theosophical Society. How can I work with people who have very different beliefs than I do to use my own sacred being to support their sacred being in whatever direction they're going to go in. So, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of that sort of work. And so I'm, you know, I apologize. I do not have easy answers and I don't have a blueprint or I would have done it.
0: Well, actually what you just said, I mean, that to me, I started my reporting career as a municipal beat reporter and Mm -hmm. I used to sit in the rooms and listen to, the community talk to each other and fight with each other and then their you know their mayor and their elected officials mediate and and eventually do something and and it was small it's what you were talking about it was local but that seems to me to be the right place to do what you're talking about yeah. because the churches are going to attract a particular uh, sentiment i guess so they're they're going to have their own goals and their own sentiments and their own ideologies but but it will actually be in our municipal gatherings where we could focus on something that benefits us all. And I think what we're, what you just said made sense. I just could picture it as a place where we could talk about the, the, the real gap that has to be crossed is returning to this idea that There is soul and spirit and it matters and I I actually think that's kind of what we're getting around here you're giving practical ideas you're giving examples and I'm still saying well how does this work and I think that's really what the problem is 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 that we're so accustomed to not to, to never wanting to say those things in our governance because of the separation of church and state which is essential yeah because everybody's view of what church ought to be is all over the place That's the part that I I struggle with all the time is how did we get to the point where it became scary to talk about soul and spirit in a public setting. I almost feel like you get bullied. You're afraid of being beaten up for talking about it. But, but that's where we really That's where we stand right now is this idea that we cannot interact with our resources and with our world and with one another, unless we view things through the framework of the power of the unseen and the reality not just the power but the fact that it even is there
1: well i mean one way to one way to do that is just to focus on the fact that the person that you're talking to is also a sacred being i mean i think maybe that's the place to start is that you know if we actually treated each other as though we were sacred i mean one of the things that i do think is really important and i always say this at work is like you know we all live in villages We may live in a big city, but in terms of the number of people that we know and that we interact with on a daily basis, we live in villages, take care of your village. And, you know, and I always tell my people, my colleagues at work and, you know, all the people that I work with at the university, they're my village. I care deeply. And like, so part of it is treating and understanding and really encountering each other as, as sacred beings. And that doesn't require, I mean, we are the sacred manifest, so that's, probably to me like the most important way to do it because part of what's dangerous is if you work on this kind of abstract level where you're like oh i care so deeply about spirit and you're not treating the person in front of you as a sacred being then you're not connecting to spirit you're connecting to an illusion and a like a delusion of what that is and really feeding your own ego about being a spiritual person So to me, that's like one of the fundamental things. It's like recognize you are in a village. Who's in your village? Take care of your village. Mm -hmm. You know, like care.
0: (laughs) So. You know, that's interesting. It's that simple. Just care. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you it's taken care of. And and care. One thought that I had while you were talking and and referencing Hamilton, um, that went right. Yeah. Then I was thinking about the last time we had this kind of um, soul quest on the planet, and I'm thinking that was World War II. And in a large sense, I mean, there's been ethnic cleansing since then in pockets of the globe. But in the, in a large sense, we had World War II. So we had the rise of Nazism, and you know, the Nazis, Hitler, they used ritual. They definitely were all about sacrifice and cleansing. No kidding. Yeah. And and they also used theater and music. So how do we also ensure that, you know, our closest thing to a ritual, the 4th of July, doesn't turn into, again, tanks lining up in front of the, the um, Lincoln Memorial. How do we end up ensuring that our rituals are joyful instead of uh, crushing and dominating
1: Well, and again, I think this is part of like trying to understand what is it at that fundamental level that you're striving for. And then that's where you get kind of your ideas and articulating whatever those values are. So, you know, to me, like, is it generative? Is it life affirming? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, but you got to have like this is part of the challenge, I think, that we're trying to deal with because we're trying to figure out, like, well, okay, so I've got like this piece of now it's generative now, how do I actually have that completely, you know, in place? But I think part of it is just starting to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in my In my opinion part of the place that we have not helped ourselves as a society is that we have been when we encountered people that were different than us we became so paranoid in a lot of ways about articulating value that that's part of where we backed off and we just didn't say anything and unfortunately some of the people who continued to articulate their values were articulating really hateful values so you know to me it's like i always say politics to me politics is applied ethics When people are like, oh, I don't understand why you're letting politics come between you, you know, it's like that's applied ethics. That has to do with fundamental values of what kind of society you're trying to build and like what your true understanding of what it would be like to live a sacred life in this world is. So, you know, it's, I think part of it is just starting to articulate that. And to me, part of that is starting to claim that as being like I believe that the values that I have are more in alignment with American values what yeah. I think through American values in alignment with you know our highest ideals that have yet to be realized than some of you know the people that are wandering around with like a lot of guns that only seem to care about the second amendment <laughs> from what I can see I and mean, that's my personal view but
0: you know so then um look well, two things one is is that what when you're not willing to talk about values in any context where it seems that you should talk about values, I think that's what gives rise to identity politics, which is politics because you didn't have the conversation in, in the first place. So everybody fractures to make sure that their values are heard and that they get valued rather than, well, we all are valuable and we all have meaning. And I do find uh, identity politics tedious because I find them unnecessary because if we did what you're talking about, we wouldn't need them. But that's my high horse. But the the other thing I'm thinking is is that ultimately, you know, I have spent too much time, I think, focused on the corruption at the top Mm -hmm. and the leadership that that's corrupt, when I think what you just iterated really is the same thing I'm feeling, which is is it's got to start at the bottom. Really, the corruption comes from the roots and not from the top. Is that true? Do you see it that way?
1: I don't know if it like is an either or statement, but I would say there is one that we can influence more directly and that that is the place to start. I mean, you always start with your own soul and your own spirit first and, you know, and working in your own relationships and that then as you use your power, you have influence elsewhere. But I mean, you know, I think that again, it's one of those things that if you are only focused on the top, And you're not dealing with like, what's right in front of you, then, you know, there's a really serious problem. So like, one of my big things is that I have to be able to look at myself in the mirror and be okay with myself every day. So have, that's a very high priority for me. I have to be able to live with my own ethics and my own ethical choices. And for me, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> and then trying to ensure that my individual relationships are sacred and that if we did that and we built it that way, then I think you would start to see changes. The other thing is I think we ought to be you know, encouraging people to seek power and not seeing things as zero-sum games. And again, that's part of my thing as, you know, a pagan and a witch is like, I don't believe that me being empowered takes power from anyone. And in fact, I want to see us all be powerful. So if you have an understanding and a definition of power in which it's a zero sum game, I think that is delusional and dangerous. And I want to try to convince people that's not the way and empower as many people as possible.
0: Are you seeing... A growth to your, uh, do you see, are you a movement? Is paganism a movement? Is it, you know, is it, tell me more about what's happening in your, um, in your circles. Are you, are you having attrition of older people? Are you having an infusion of the younger people? And and then translate that, put that in context for what that might mean for the future of America. So paganism is generally considered a new religious movement, and
1: it has its primary growth began in the counterculture of the 60s. But you started seeing, like, I began identifying as a pagan in, like, 86, 87. So I've been in this for a long time. Um... And I have watched it change dramatically over time where it it does have a lot of growth. Now, the other thing that we're seeing, though, is there's a lot of growth of solitary practitioners, which is people that are not necessarily associated with a specific group. But I do think in general, and this has been happening really since Gen X. So it's not new, mm. but really since Gen X, you've been seeing more and more people when they say like, oh well I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm, you know, I don't want to tie myself to a specific religion, but I believe in, you know, a lot of things that are in along along these lines, along various kinds of spiritual lines. The other thing is that I think that, you know, we have pushed into the ontological basement a number of extraordinary spiritual experiences that are very common across time, across place. And I'm starting to hear people talk about those more as opposed to keeping them quiet. Like what? And, oh, So the the traditional, the extraordinary spiritual experiences, these are experiences that are attested to across culture and across time. And part of what's happened is that we don't talk about them. So that makes us pretend that they're not there, but actually people are still having them. They just don't talk about them. So the most um, famous would be the unitive uh, mystical experience. There's the near death experience, out of body experience, the uh, past life recall. Um, Let's see. The hag rider, which is the only one that is bad. That's the only one that feels bad to you.
0: And what is that? I don't know what that is.
1: Oh, that's the experience of the, um, it's like the sleep paralysis with a, um, malevolent being, the, the presence of a malevolent being. That's the one that's bad. So a
0: nightmare, a night terror, or is it different? Yeah,
1: that's, that's where it's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So the night hag, the nightmare, the night is the same experience. Um, I'm missing one. Did I say out of body experience? There's six of them. I may have missed one of them. Um, but yeah, so there's these various kinds of experiences that people have. Oh, visitation from the dead. That's the other. I was just thinking, I was like,
0: I might, I might know one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, those are the ones that people have, but it's something that because as you said, originally, there are a lot of people who might look askance, at me and be like, oh, you know, I can't believe you as an educated person think all these crazy things. Well, I've had a lot of these experiences, um, you know, and so that's pretty compelling. But my experience in being as open with it as I decided to be when I was still pretty young is that actually a lot of people have these experiences. They don't talk about them. And part of it that I'm seeing with younger people is that they're talking about them more. And that might break some of this down. The other thing is there's certain things like I believe in the separation of church and state um but not everything is about faith like when it comes to reincarnation and i absolutely believe it i make no sense to myself if there is not reincarnation mm-hmm. somebody is right and somebody's wrong in this i mean reincarnation is either
0: real or it's not and if it's i did faith, have a buddhist to... explain it to i'm sorry to interrupt but i yeah. you know i i guess i'm agnostic on it but that's not to say that there isn't a right answer but i had a buddhist friend explain it to me as where does the energy go because energy can't be destroyed. So I thought about that. I don't have an answer. But for what it's worth for anybody else who might be thinking? Uh. Yeah,
1: well, you have people like, uh, you know, the work of Ian Stevenson, and he and his colleagues, you know, what they did was they tracked down all sorts of people originally in India, but then he did a lot with uh, Europe and America in which they were looking at people who claimed to have past life memories when they were small, like small children. So, you know, and then went and traced things back and has a fair amount of evidence that's pretty suggestive of that being real. Like, so, you know, like my experiences, they are not going to be the kinds of things that that would convince anybody because I'm too old now. But like I said, that's, that's not necessarily a matter of faith. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong in that one. And if reincarnation is real, then that that has a whole lot of very practical applications. I mean, you know, and what I mean by that is, um, <laughs> reincarnation is real and you can come back in any body in any time, then, you know, we really ought to be making sure that there is on just a very selfish level, which is not for my reason, the main one to do it, but like you could be born into any body in any place in any time. You probably ought to be thinking about what that might look like. (laughs) What kind of social structures would that lead us to? So, you know, there's just a lot of potential implications for that. So anyway, I guess my the earlier part is I do see in the younger generation more openness to a lot of this and more openness to um, looking at trying to really understand and create meaning, which is a large part of what religion and spirituality also is about. I mean, you know, and I think that, yeah, the, yeah finding ways to create
0: meaning is incredibly important. I think that that's, that's been one of my my drivers with with Documental is to be able to feel free to give meaning and and not just give meaning to our experiences but to know that's important because we're not just here to be slaves to the economy that that is such a depressing and we have such high rates of depression i think people forget how to connect beyond this idea of being a cog in a wheel but i think finding meaning in our lives you know i i why did the people st- why did we stop talking about those six uh, common experiences? Why have we thought it was okay to be assigned a place, not find a meaning? These are the things that I may never actually understand why they happened, but these are the things that I specifically want to address with conversations like this. I think you're dead on that we, we, we our, our sense of meaning has been too tied up in this hollow American dream that, yeah. really is just propaganda. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it has to be. I mean, I I know the origins of it and it began around the time of uh, Lindbergh and this whole idea of, you know, it was it, it actually has its roots in an anti Semitic time. But just like so many things our language having been stolen and used against us that part of the soul retrieval of the country that i'm looking at would would then also mean taking the meaning out of the words back and contemplating them again and then using them to actually express who we are this starts to get very esoteric but at the same time if we don't do it there's no practical purpose to anything else does that make sense
1: yeah totally i mean you know and I, i think there's a number of things going on there exactly as you're saying it's like you know i believe that fundamental to a human being is a necessity of not just finding, but also creating meaning and that that's what makes us human. Right. And so, you know, this idea, I have never been able, part of the reason I ended up in kind of an alternative kind of culture is I, I have never been able to find meaning in making money. I know that there is like money and status is there and that you need a certain amount of it to get by, especially if you don't have the safety net. but you know, man, that's just trading for, for time. And like I said, time is the ultimate scarce and valued human resource. That's the place for mortal beings. That's, you know, that's the place in which we have to be able to expend our time in such a way as to pursue those things that will be meaningful and really develop ourselves. So, yeah.
0: Well, one, one last big question, and then um, any loose ends you may want to tie up. I'm thinking who in America Maybe if not currently, but at least in the last century or or less. Who's done what you're talking about or who's Shown us at least a little bit of a of a path. Can you anybody. I mean, maybe the answer is no one. I don't know. Yeah,
1: no, there are definitely people who have but actually I want to jump over to somebody else who is someone that you had uh, mentioned in your um, no, Steiner? Me, yep, I want to yeah. jump to Steiner. So, Steiner is not American, he is um, German, but I think he's very, very interesting in that what he manages to do is he's got this very big picture. He comes, he's originally a theosophist, and then he founds um, kind of a breakaway from that anthroposophy but what he does is he has this very, very big picture understanding about the nature of spiritual evolution and he manages to create systems that actually are built on trying to bring that down into earth better than anybody else, I think, um, as a clear example. So both Montessori and the Waldorf schools, Montessori was also a theosophist and the Waldorf schools come out of Steiner's work. And so part of that is it is a radically different educational system But part of what he's doing there is he's like, what do we want a human being to look like when they become an adult in our society? Yeah. You start from there and you build everything up in this radically different way. But he also created a form of farming. He created a system of medicine. He created a whole bunch of different things. So, you know, I think he's an interesting... um, An interesting example of somebody who actually managed to get some major radical movements um, done in the world in a way. Why
0: why is he not? I mean, we have the Waldorf schools now, but they're still not. I mean, I think most people, if they were to say, can you think of an alternative form of early education, they would maybe say Montessori. Mm -hmm. They would probably not know Waldorf. That's my experience, even though there are Waldorf schools around here anyway. Why didn't he... What happened? I mean, he, so he came to America with his ideas.
1: You didn't by, know America. He, he was in Germany.
0: Well, but but his ideas were brought here. What, by, by Jung? Who brought his ideas?
1: Uh, no, it wouldn't have been Jung. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember who brought over. I mean, the Anthroposophy Society is, the Anthroposophical Society is international. I'm not sure which person actually brought it over, though.
0: So he, but his ascend, it was late 1800s, early 1900s. Um really? Yeah, and and then, then out of that we had a, a, the last big moment I was talking about before in the 30s with Hitler was also a moment of in-depth psychology, depth psychology, you know, where you also had Jung, you had Freud, but I'm thinking more like Jung because Jung was more aligned with with uh, Steiner in that it was more about uh, the unconscious and a spirit than it was about sex and about uh, repression. Yeah. Um So if this is a moment in time, which is similar to that, is it possible we could reinvigorate the Steiner sorts of perspectives on things? And if so, what would we need to do differently so that it would actually take hold? Because my original question was, well, why didn't when this awareness came to the United States, why didn't it grow bigger than it did?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and part of that had to do with the fact that the way in which it came over here was in the private school system. So um, that's different than, say, in Finland, where like a third of the public schools are stronger schools. So, I mean, that is part of it. It's like how it melds in and our entire educational system is sort of weird. But I guess my, uh, in terms of the way in which we structure it in this country is, is kind of strange in comparison to most other countries. But I think that the point though, that I would say is that Steiner started with what's the really big picture nature of reality? What do I imagine a healthy society would look like? What do I imagine a healthy uh, citizen would look like? And then how do I figure out to create systems to bring that up? So I guess the the point that I would bring to that is again, although it sounds, you know, it's, it's really easy to jump in with solutions when you don't have clear vision. And then you're just tinkering with the same damn thing. Mm. And I guess to me, what I would say is I keep, trying to say what we need is to unleash our imaginations and to really create a vision and then from there you can break people off and say all right you know so in this society in which we are envisioning a different world what does safety look like what are we trying to do and you know and then how would that work and in so starting at that big vision I think that's the big thing we just keep tinkering with stuff and if we do we're not fundamentally changing the source code and I think this is an opportunity for us to change the source code.
0: What just popped into my head when you, when you were asking those questions is I thought about, um, doesn't matter where I saw it, but a statistic recently, where 94 million Americans claim to be evangelical. Now, I've been educated recently by some of my evangelical readers and, and uh, listeners and subscribers. Evangelical does not equate with Christian nationalism, and I have some of those people in my audience as well, and that's a very different thing. But when you have 94 million people who are looking at the world through a specific fundamental point of view, have you found in your experience that that is an an, an obstacle that can't be overcome, or do you just find that as a fact and you just work with it? Well, I I'm assuming that that would mean okay. So let me just lay the groundwork on that. That that viewpoint of 94 million people is not that it's up to us to do this. It's that God already has a plan, and it's it's something else. It's not you know oh all kinds of people, including pagans. My goodness, come in from you know other angles and try and achieve. The, the promised land of the American dream. No, no, it's already, it's already going. And I'm, I'm not an evangelical, so if I'm misrepresenting that point of view, then I'm sure I'm gonna hear about it, and that's great. I will make sure to correct it. But my understanding is this is God's work, not ours, and that pagans certainly shouldn't be included on that unless they convert. So when we have 94 million people who are looking at a, a specific uh, vision and end game, what do we do? Because I might not share that end game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think those are
1: really important questions. And I do think that, you know, when you have the 94 million, it, there's, there's more variety there than I think people realize. Um, You know, I have had some amazingly good spiritual conversations with various evangelicals over the years. And as you said, there are some of them that are the hardcore nationalists, the kind of, you know, if you change the religion, you're basically dealing with the Taliban. And there are others who are really clearly not that where they Mm -hmm. are, you know, and this includes a large number of like my grandparents were among them and they are driven by the gospel and their understanding of Christianity. They were driven to support the civil rights movement. They were driven to, you know, um, to try to take care of the poor. So I think there's a large variety there. And I, I think that one of the things that is challenging is that um, you know, the, the part that is like more um, exclusive often get more press. So mm-hmm. I think that there's, there's, I'm not sure that they're, they're, they're the same always when we look at those numbers. Um, the other thing is, you know, there's my experience with many evangelicals is that they believe that their work is to do the work here. And so it's not necessarily that it's fait accompli. Now, there are some places that, you know, there's probably going to be some conflict around that, but I don't know that it's necessarily something that is um, incapable of being dealt with. So I would say, you know, if they want to exclude anyone who's not like them, I mean, another possibility is that they could create their own like small subcommunities, communities and stay within them. I mean, you know, it's like if that's really their thing, there's, there's places and we have other communities who have done that. So I don't know.
0: I think there's other places that we could look So that makes me think, but the way to wrap this up then, and then if you wanna, if there's anything I didn't get to that you wanna (laughs) make sure that we discuss then. So you're saying, okay, so really what you're saying is treat your world as it actually is, which is as a village and start at the village level, asking what matters most and what is interfering with that mattering being um, effervescent and serving and vital. Maybe it's the local food supply, maybe it's the local water supply, maybe it's education, maybe it's safety, whatever it is. In your, in your local organization, in your local community, whatever you designate that to be, identify what, what you value. Identify the threats to what you value and then work together to create those solutions. I mean, this, none of this is, is insanely revolutionary. <laughs> this is all really practical and we know how to do this but this is what you're saying. Well, I mean, that's part of it. That's only a part of it. I
1: am also saying, think, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is take the time and really explore and have big vision about what it is and have that sense of meaning guide you, whatever that is. And that to not just like do the kind of practical work, but like in your relationship with people, your relationship is sacred and the other person is sacred. But yeah, I think the big thing is that we could start having these bigger conversations In which we're attempting to do exploring, but on, you know, in which we're attempting to create a different vision. I think that the arts have an important role in that. And I think having us have the moment and the time to actually think through big vision is important. And taking that idea of us creating meaning is what makes us human. So, I mean, you know. As you said, there's there's a challenge and that what I'm talking about on the one hand is really, really big. And then there's that question of how do you get that down and how do you manage to live with it? And we're all living in our local environments. I would also say um, we should be paying attention to where we can make differences. But um, in terms of the national, but I just think that we tend to ignore the local. Well, it's almost a practical piece,
0: but the comforting part about it is it's not complicated. But it's still hard because you have to be willing to go out there and be vulnerable and say, this is what I value. And here's a dream I have. And, you know, we're accustomed to being told that doesn't matter. That's not important. It's gotten very um, It's bellicose when you share something that's tender in, in our society right now. And I think, again, this goes back to why I think identity politics has gotten so Um, Marshall so angry is is because people feel like they're not valued If if we just would give people a place to be heard so so there's the practical steps for identify what it is that you want to value and then protect and then maybe grow and 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 invigorate attach it to a bigger vision um, which you might be able to cement and remind people about through arts and ritual yeah I mean ritual
1: so ritual is a way of connecting with the sacred parts of yourself, the sacred parts of other be that other other members of your community, if you believe in gods or whatever um, those kinds of spirit beings and like your natural environment and you can build those in and and they rituals help you live meaning on a daily basis, you know so like Small rituals, I would say, don't overlook the importance of small rituals. Um, You know, small rituals are things like taking a moment to think about where your food came from and, you know, through and connecting with it and giving gratitude. I mean, that actually is a ritual. If you do it as a ritual, if you take that moment to say, I am in a sacred spot right now about to take this into myself and I'm going to do blessing with it in whatever variety. I mean, you know, you can do that through a a Christian lens, through any of the world's religions lens. But the point is you're connecting with your food source and what's taking you in and you're giving it meaning in that moment and connecting with your environment. That's a sacred act. So, I mean, there's all sorts of little things that you can do throughout your day. Well, it just sounds,
0: you're describing describing showing up, being present. Yeah. I think that's really, so people need to snap out of it, come out of the miasma, be present, be aware Mm Yeah. And like when you're talking to another being, like, you know, you have
1: my full attention right now. I am, I, and by the way, I'm grateful. I honor you for the fact that you are a sacred being and you know, so being actually present with people and that's actually pretty revolutionary right now when everyone, every two seconds is like looking at one of these things. It's like making a conscious choice to say, I am like honoring the sacred in me and the sacred in you by actually choosing to show up and be present in this time in which we are together. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of those things have more impact than we necessarily realize they do. There's big rituals you can also do, and I have all sorts of things, but that gets into, like, a whole lot of back information that's hard to convey in this format. So if anyone's interested, I have all sorts of, like, courses
0: that I teach on this stuff
1: (laughs) within the university uh, and um,
0: others. I will put... We'll work on which which links to put, but you do have several courses and, and um I will I'll, I'll make sure that I give resources to to readers and and to listeners and watchers and the audience so is there anything else that um would you know infuse more wisdom um, you know wrap things up just anything else that I didn't bring up or that you think maybe I'm still struggling with or <laughs> you
1: know well I mean I think these are really really big topics and they're hard to come to nice clean kinds of mm-hmm. uh, decisions are like wrap that you know it's hard to wrap it up in that way but i guess what i would say is um fear is important for alerting you to danger and we have a lot of danger but after you're alerted to it it doesn't serve so mm-hmm. i would also say that you know as we're talking about how to cleanse the miasma and all of these different things so much of what we run into trouble with is that our biology doesn't necessarily always match our circumstances. And so taking some conscious effort to learn how to process that, I mean, you know, once you have realized, for example, the climate catastrophe is real and upon us, you need to like not put that aside and ignore it. But you also can't get like locked down in fear. So I think part of it is trying to understand like, how one is feeling and how to, to match that along with what's appropriate. But that also, that takes into account some of the, the realistic kind of things. So we have a moment. We have a moment here where I would say, let us say there is danger, there's no such thing as a great leak without the danger of a great fall, and then move forward. And, you know, just be brave in this moment. And also kind of optimistic. I mean, you know, there's no point in us like weighting ourselves down and thinking that it can't be done or that we're going to fall into, you know, a lot of opposition. Of course we will.
0: Just keep moving. <laughs> I think one of the ways to be optimistic actually is to realize you truly, whoever you are, you're not alone. Even if you're sitting here looking at a computer, you really aren't alone. And when I decided to, to pull Documental back because I, I realized I don't want to perform for a spectator crowd. I want to work in core coordination with other people that was a that was a risk but already I started to see people line up next to me not in front of me not behind me definitely I don't want to be in front of people I want to be with people yeah we'll all have solutions but I just it was really encouraging after I sent that out last week people said I'm with you good people said I'm out but that's fine yeah we'll find another way to be wherever they need to be but the people who lined up next to me and said I'm with you that's what I was looking for and it was more reassuring to me than I even realized it was going to be to understand that I'm not alone in this, even right, though I, right. I thought maybe my voice was just supposed to be itself and no. And so anyway, that's my kind of coda to what you're saying is, is that you can be optimistic when you realize you're not doing that in a vacuum.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, it's been really educational and, and also really fun to have this conversation. Okay.
1: Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope that I hope this uh, that I gave you what it is that will be of use to you in um, your work and the great work that you are doing here and trying to help move us forward. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Dr. Reese. All right, bye bye.
0: Bye bye.